welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes. If you're watching on YouTube, please do not forget to click the subscribe button and the thumbs up if the content benefits you in any way. Also, would appreciate a share. Click that bell for continued notifications. Um, I know that some of you have had difficulty receiving notifications for when uh, new content is posted. That's usually because you have not clicked the bell, um, but sometimes it can also be related to your uh, your your settings in your phone. Sometimes phones are set to not allow notifications for certain apps, so please check that out as well. I know I had someone asking the other day uh, on YouTube, you know, I've, I've clicked the bell, but I don't have the notifications, and um, I, I can't remember. I think a, a few other people responded, so I didn't. I didn't respond, and um, and usually that's due to a settings issue in your phone, so you can look into that. Um, I uh, am going to, what I want to do is I, I, I want to address some, uh, some two, two things, uh, really one thing, uh, not necessarily two things, one thing, one twofold thing, um, and I don't, There's a lot of uh, conversation right now concerning the doctrine of God, and it's it's less conversation and more monologue because there is not a willingness to actually have a two-way discussion, and there is an inconsistency uh, on, it seems to be con- consistently an inconsistency on the part of uh, the other side, quote-unquote, to not engage in these kinds of beneficial two-way conversations. So right now, what we have is, you know, you have Dr. James White producing dividing lines about, you know, Thomism, divine simplicity, not really engaging in a whole lot of two-way dialogue uh, worth anything, uh, certainly not public two-way dialogue, um, even though he's producing a lot of public content about the issue. Uh, and uh, as a result, you have I think I think what's what's happening is there's 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 more um, confusion and solidification in in positions that Christians should not be solidified in purely because the discussions are not being had. That that opportunity. To for iron to sharpen iron is really not being realized. That's very unfortunate. There have been several invitations for open public dialogue, even private dialogue, uh, issued to James White and others, and those invitations seem to have gone uh, either, if they're not completely ignored, they are. Uh, there's uh, some kind of an excuse given for why. Um, uh, those conversations cannot happen. I will just mention quickly that uh, you know one example of this kind of uh, this kind of inconsistency can be seen in the fact uh, that I think Dr. James White is going to be participating in a, a conference, some kind of a conference in Washington D.C. Washington D.C. definitely is a uh, a blue area uh, politically. Um, and, um, one of the excuses that, uh, Dr. James White gave for, 
for not engaging Dr. James Dalzall in person. Chad Vegas had extended the, uh, the invitation for James White to come out to California and have a sit down with, uh, with James Dalzall, I believe. And uh, that invitation was uh, ultimately rejected by Dr. White. And uh, it was kind of tongue in cheek, but the excuse given was, well, California is a blue state and, and I'm not traveling through blue states right now on principle. Well, here we have this just thinking about the Bible conference put on by G3 taking place in Washington, D.C., September 15 to 17. And you have James White as a, uh, a key speaker participant there in that conference. So, you know, this is a big issue. The doctrine of God is a big issue. Opportunities for dialogue have been extended and many, if not all, of those same opportunities have been rejected, ignored, etc. All that to say, I don't want to scathe anybody. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, you know, dig a knife in anybody's heart or anything here. I just want to encourage the dialogue. The, the dialogue. If you're if you're going to talk about a, a a weighty doctrine like the doctrine of God, it's not a hobby horse. It's not a secondary, tertiary issue. It is the very bedrock of our religion as Christians. Then I, you know, little old me is just encouraging everyone out there, myself included, to take that very seriously, seriously enough to have meaningful in-person conversation with the saints, preferably public conversation for the benefit of the audience because there are a lot of people out there trying to figure out which way to go. And there are a lot of people out there just now dipping their toe into the doctrine of God in a meaningful way. And then they enter into this broader dispute, discussion, debate. And if it's not handled correctly, there can be even more confusion that that results. So we don't want that. I don't think anybody wants that. And so the admonishment here is, of course, just to, you know, see the value, see the value of in-person dialogue. Okay, what do I what do I want to do here? Um, in his most recent dividing line, there's going to be a dividing line today. I'm not talking about that one, obviously. Uh, it's it's March third. I'm not talking about the March. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Throw in my Apple pin here. Not talking about the March 3rd dividing line. I'm talking about the dividing line that was streamed live on March 1st, right? March 1st. And the title of it is Reformed Thomists, question mark. And I'm not going to review the episode. I'm not going to do a a point by point, you know, evaluation or examination of it or anything like that. But one of the things, if you just start at like the 10 minute mark, maybe, I I would just, I would encourage you, of course, if you want to listen to the whole thing, start at the beginning. But the relevant area is when Dr. James White begins to talk about doctrinal development. Um, and that conversation uh, on his part begins, you know, 10 minutes. I would say the 10-minute mark, just start there. Um, I'm looking at 1238 right now where he starts to draw on the board, kind of illustrating uh, what he perceives to be the, 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 the issue of asserting any kind of doctrinal development. Um, and, and the concern comes from a, 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 a quote 
It's a quote from a journal article, I believe, in the Master's uh, Journal that Dr. Matthew Barrett wrote. Um, and the excerpt, I'm just going to read the entire excerpt, and, uh, and then we'll go from there. But what, what Dr. Barrett wrote is this. He says, We have not treated Thomas with the same historical fairness and sobriety as other fallible theologians across the church's history. Of course, the evangelical will disagree with Thomas on a doctrine like the sacraments, but we have failed to recognize that less than 12% of the Summa, by that he means the Summa Theologiae, is content the evangelical will disagree with at all. So he's saying that less than 12% is content that is going to be called into question by uh, the, uh, the evangelical. He says evangelicals might also be surprised to discover that they have an Augustinian ally in Thomas with doctrines as widespread as predestination, providence, inspiration, atonement, and Christian virtues. That startling statistic leaves evangelicals open to interrogation. Are evangelicals actually reading Thomas or relying on easy caricatures that depend on serious inaccuracies? But more to the point, what other theologians in history would we abandon like this, especially when the same theologian was so responsible for the full development of the most foundational loci, or loci, in orthodoxy, the Trinity and Christology? Now, that's the phrase that, that's the phrase that, that Dr. White's calling into question in the dividing line here that I'm talking about. Roman Catholics recognized Thomas's indispensability to theology, but we have allowed them to take Thomas without a fight. And I would say that that's right there. I think there's there's a lot of, uh, <clears throat> rightfully so, there's a lot of questioning right now as to whether or not Trent did the right thing with Thomas. Uh, a lot of people will say, no, you need to avoid Thomas because Thomas is, after all, the bedrock of, of the Council of Trent. Uh, the counter, you know, Rome's counter-reformation and all of that. Well, the, the question, of course, becomes, well, did the Council of Trent fairly appropriate Thomas Aquinas? Um, and I think that's something that is, is, is being called into question because of the heavy resourcement that's, that's, that's taking, that's been taking place for a while now. Anyway, the phrase that's, that's called into question here is this phrase related to, or mentioning the development of Trinity and Christology. But more to the point, what other theologian in history would we abandon like this, especially when this same theologian was so responsible for the full development, those are the words in question, of the most foundational loci in orthodoxy, the Trinity and Christology. And of course, Dr. James White implicates this idea of doctrinal development in Newmianism. You know, John Henry Newman is the famous 19th century Catholic theologian that argued for a form of doctrinal development which, which actually enabled Rome to better justify its behavior as a chameleon uh, chronologically and culturally. So when, when, when Rome, you know, begins to quote-unquote evangelize another culture, you know, they will change and adapt to that culture so they can be more easily accepted by that culture at large. And then in terms of time as well, we know that the Roman Catholicism of the 6th century, 7th century, is most certainly not the same Roman Catholicism that we see in the 15th and 16th centuries. And so in order to justify that kind of 
progress, <clears throat> that kind of change, because remember, <clears throat> Rome has to justify that change in light of the fact that the magisterium uh, provides or facilitates an infallible interpretation, uh, theological interpretation of the Word of God. All right, so um, uh, you, you, on, on the one hand, you're saying, well, the church is unable to err. On the other hand, you're saying, well, but the church has changed over the last 1,000, 1,500 years or so, right? So how do you hold those two things together in tension? And what they do through John Henry Newman is they engineer a, uh, a conception or an idea of doctrinal development which allows for change in doctrine itself, it allows for change in the doctrine itself. And this is how Rome can justify its uh, substantive and accidental changes in various cultures throughout the world and, you know, throughout various seasons and centuries. Anyway, that's a lengthy discussion set forth by Newman in a lengthy essay called On the De Development of Doctrine. That's not what Matthew Barrett's talking about here. All right, there's a difference between saying on the one hand that doctrine itself develops, which we don't want to say, right? That's what that's what Rome seems to want to say in order to justify their in order to be able to hold their their doctrine of ecclesiology and tradition yet also the account for the change of doctrine that's occurred in them over the centuries. Um, we don't want to say that. We don't want to join with them and say that at all. Um, but you have to recognize the fact that doctrine, in if it's our doctrine, for example, if it's our, our teaching, our understanding, right? If, if, if it's our, uh, our understanding of doctrine that we're talking about, we have to say that that develops. Um, what we don't want to say is that the doctrine that God has revealed once for all to the saints develops, right? That's doctrine in itself. This is the revelation that God has given to us. All the truth in the scriptures is given, of course, in the scriptures, right? But is there a progress and understanding in the human mind, in the mind of the believer, as he or she reads the scriptures chews on the scriptures, feasts on the scriptures, and over time their understanding increases, their knowledge increases, they become more and more mature. This is the process of sanctification we're talk talking about, right? And we don't say that, uh, you know, you take, take it at the individual level, an individual Christian, we don't say that because the individual Christian is sanctified and comes to a more thorough understanding of doctrine later on in life, by the work of the Holy Spirit, we don't say that therefore his doctrine or the object of his faith has changed, though he has increased in the understanding and knowledge of the object of his faith, namely the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the triune God's works, right? Um, and so there's a, there's a key distinction that we have to make there between Doctrine itself, or the faith, as it's objectively considered, as it comes from the mouth of God, and our understanding of it, on the other hand. Now, so you, you admit that, you have to admit, on some level, that there's some development in an individual's knowledge, 
in their grasp and understanding of Christian doctrine. And so uh, when, you, when you take that and you expand that out to the church at large um, from the first century onward, uh, and you consider texts like Matthew 16, where Jesus says that he'll build his church, the gates of Hades will by no means prevail against it. He can't mean by that in number only, right? He's not just talking about numbers. He's not just talking there about, you know, the, the amount of believers. He, he's also talking about their, their, their improvement in the knowledge of Christ. And, uh, and so, you know, when you, if, you, if you consider the bride, which Christ, which Christ is sanctifying, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 25 onward, then you have to, you have to be able to expand that, that experience of the individual believer to an extent to the, to the whole church also, so that the whole church really is being sanctified. The whole church is being sanctified. That's what Ephesians 5 tells us. And so, The doctrine that has been given to the church with the close of the canon of the New Testament, um, put together with the Old Testament, of course, is complete. It's perfect. It's sufficient. Is our understanding of it complete and perfect? I would hope nobody would say that. Uh, I mean, even, even the apostles, you know, did not know everything there was to know about the Christian faith. What they did speak on in terms of their epistolary writings and the gospel accounts and all of that is true, infallibly, inerrantly, because it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But they themselves, as persons, did not have an exhaustive knowledge of the Christian faith. Um, moving on from them, going beyond them to the, the, the early church, post-apostolic church, it did not have an exhaustive knowledge of the Christian faith. In fact, when you're looking at some doctrines, uh, I'll, I'll use baptism as an example, there's not a, a ton of universal agreement on certain things in the early church. Um. That's not because the doctrine's not there, objectively considered, but it's because the creature uh, is in process of coming to a better understanding of the doctrine. And so when, when the Christian, by the power of the Spirit, grasps the seminal gospel, the gospel, the basic gospel that must be believed on for salvation, which has to be there and intact in the very beginning, the Christian enters upon a life, and this is true of the whole church to a degree. They enter upon, the, the whole church has entered upon a life of plumbing the depths of God's revelation, and we're 2,000 years into it. And so when we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of Christology, we're of course not saying that God hasn't revealed everything that we need to know about the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of Christology. God has revealed it all. God has delivered it all for one, for one to the saints, right? God's, uh, God has, has, has given us the complete package. Does it take time and sanctification to come to a more thorough grasp and understanding of that doctrine that God has delivered to the church? And the answer should be, of course, yes. All right. There's no way 
that Christians at any given point in their lives are going to be saying, I know, and, and, and you know, there's no way that they're going to be saying this credibly. I know exhaustively and fully the doctrine of the Trinity. I know exhaustively and fully the doctrine of Christology. Of course, that would never be the case if you confess the infinity of God, uh, the magnitude of God, and so on and so forth. So there must be some form of doctrinal development. But it's not the development of doctrine in, say, that is in and of itself. It's the doctrinal development of doctrine in subiecto, all right? That is in the subject, in the knower. And collectively considered, when we consider the whole church, the, 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 the church is the knower, right? And so there is a development of doctrine in subiecto that is in the knower, the church coming to a better grasp, a fuller grasp, a, a more weighty grasp of what we're dealing with in Christian theology. All right, so that's a that's kind of a, a right understanding of of doctrine, and I will just appeal to um, uh, the the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, if you go to chapter one, I don't know if you have it sitting in front of you. If not, no big deal. But if you go to chapter one of the Holy Scriptures. And turn to paragraph 7. What do we read there? We read, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor like clear unto all. All right, so there are things in scriptures in the Scriptures that you're not going to pick up on immediately. And we could say that of the whole church, right, to some extent. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of ordinary means, may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. Okay, uh, so the other thing that I want to say is that the Trinity and Christology are doctrines that are known by the Christian at the very beginning. Are they exhaustively known? Absolutely not. Um, and so, once they are known and they are received by faith, then the Christian, by faith, engages to understand more about the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of Christology. And so, you know, again, expand that out from the individual to the corporate church. And you have the same dynamic. That over the years, God has been pleased to refine and sanctify his bride. And so when, when Dr. Barrett says something like, uh, or uses the words like, the full development of the most foundational loci, all right? So he's talking about our systematic theology or systematization or our dogmatics in relation to the Trinity and Christology. That most certainly has developed, right? So look at the doctrine, for example, in the Cappadocians, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of Christology, and then read them, uh, and, and read something like the Athanasian Creed. And then fast forward to the post-Reformation and the Puritans and read the Puritans on the same loci, on the Trinity and on Christology. And what you're going to find is a much more full picture, dare I say a much more developed understanding of the Trinity and of Christology. The other thing I want to point out here 
is that as Dr. White criticizes Matthew Barrett's use of doctrinal development, um, he himself, I believe, and I and I try to, I don't want to sound smug when I say this, but I, but I think what he's doing is he's is he's is he's not is he's failing to account for his own assumptions of doctrinal development really at the level of New Testament source and text criticism. And uh, the reason I say that is is if you go to Alpha and Omega's ministry's website uh and uh, in, in the in the blog there on on that website, there's a uh, a series on textual criticism, and there's an article written by Colin Smith, and it's titled "An, an Introduction to Textual Criticism." And it's part one. This is the introduction. It's the very first paragraph, and what does he say? He says the study of the various manuscript witnesses to the New Testament, commonly referred to as New Testament textual criticism, is without doubt of the most critical importance for the Christian church. For the, non, for the non-Christian academic, the precise wording of the original Greek language text is of scholarly interest, but nothing more. For the Christian, however, the text under examination is God's word communicated through men to men. If these words are inspired by God, then it is of paramount importance that the Christian know exactly which words God intended the inspired authors to write. Indeed, the question of what the pastor is going to preach to his congregation in terms of the biblical text should drive the Christian textual critic to pursue excellence in this field of study. Is this not a form of development? Uh, A development, and I'm not saying I disagree with text criticism at every level or anything like that, but I'm just using this to illustrate the point of inconsistency. How can you imply a measure of development of our understanding of the New Testament canon. Yet we can't also talk about the development of our understanding of particular doctrines set forth by the New Testament. Right? So how can how can the New Testament be the object of development uh, in terms of our understanding of what it is and our being able to identify or discern or determine what it is, what is New Testament and what is not? Why is that okay? But yet, when it comes to the whole, you know, corpus of Christian theology, we're not allowed to talk about any kind of development in terms of the church coming to a more thorough understanding of the significance of this or that doctrine, or of the church being able to come to a more thorough understanding in terms of vocabulary used to articulate this or that doctrine, namely that of the Trinity and Christology. Which I would argue that's a, a, a lot of what Thomas does is he is is not inventing new steps or new uh, appendages or or uh, what would you say um, appendices to the doctrine of the Trinity or to Christology, but what is he doing? He is uh, on the backs of figures who had gone before him, he is using vocabulary and expanded vocabulary to illumine further to us, to help us to better understand and to better articulate the doctrine that God has already revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. And so, um, you know, this is, 
this is the kind of development that we're talking about. Again, if you're going to allow for that kind of development with regard to the New Testament canon, why cannot that same kind of development in principle relate also to doctrines themselves and us being able to further understand and further elaborate upon the doctrine of, say, the Trinity or Christology? Anyway, guys, I hope this has been a a helpful episode, a helpful podcast. If it has been, please uh, give it a share. Give me a thumbs up. If you have any questions, let me know in the comments section. Of course, I'm always uh, glad to see questions. It gives me ideas of what to do next. I have a couple of requests that are yet outstanding. Somebody wants me to do a tour of my libraries, and uh, I will get to that as time allows. And so I'll put uh, uh, some library tours up hopefully sooner rather than later. Anyways, if this was helpful to you, uh, uh, please use it um, in any way you see fit. You know, if you want to share it with others or um, uh, or just subscribe to the channel and, and be ready for some more. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.